Hello and welcome to episode 153 of Real Life Ghost Stories. To kick things off this week, I need to thank some of our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Sherlocked, Bridget M, Katie Litfin, Lou, Haley, Amber Orr, Rhonda Hagen, Tracy Rose, Joseph Lockyer, Leda Juarez, Maria Cotolo, Paul Carter, Katie Alvarez, Mimi C, Lulu Rogers, and Katie McGregor. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and I appreciate you every single day. And our film review this week. Our film review is The Cellar. The Cellar was released in 2022. It is 5.3 out of 10 on IMDb and 30% on Rotten Tomatoes. Kira Woods' daughter mysteriously vanishes in the cellar of their new house. She soon discovers there is an ancient and powerful entity controlling their home that she will have to face or risk losing her family's souls forever. So like last week, I'm going to keep this short and sweet and we are going to start with the things that I liked about this film. This film is based on a short film called Ten Steps and Basically, the concept of the short film was that a girl is babysitting, she rings her parents because the power goes out and she has to go into the basement to like find the fuse box, flick the switch, but she's really frightened so she rings her dad and her dad says to her, look there's only 10 steps so I'll count the 10 steps with you and then you're in the basement and then I can talk you through it and they count the 10 steps together but she doesn't stop at the 10th step, she keeps counting and counting, and counting, and walking into this dark oblivion, which I think is a really, really good concept for a short film, and basically the entire film is built around that concept. And the reason why I specifically wanted to watch this film is because it's an Irish film, and I love watching Irish films, and I particularly love when good Irish horror films came out, so I was pretty excited when I read the synopsis for this one. And the opening was fantastic and the reason why it was fantastic is that the soundscape was so effective it made me feel really anxious don't know what it was about the soundscape I was feeling pretty shook after the opening credits as I said it's based on a short horror film and it's a great concept for a movie I think and the daughter disappearing into the cellar kind of happens quite early on in the film and it happens just as it does happen in the short film So that concept is really strong and the movie is sort of padded out around that. And I think it really plays on that universal fear of the dark and that idea that things can change in the dark. And I think everybody can relate to that. It's like that meme, that joke that everyone makes that, you know, the pile of clothes on your chair is just a pile of clothes on your chair during the day. But at three o'clock in the morning, it's a man in a hat sitting watching you sleep. You know, and I think this movie really plays on that fear that somehow in the darkness, the cellar becomes an entrance to somewhere. So I was into the concept and I have to say throughout the film, there was more of like an implication of evil and a sense of dread rather than showing anything, which I think is always a better option in horror films. So there is an entity in the house and it is portrayed by like flickering lights And there's one point where you can, you know, it's coming up the stairs and you just see like the breath in somebody's hair, which I think is a really good way to show that monster rather than 
making some sort of poor attempt at CGI. So I thought that not showing the monster was a good move. And uh, to be honest, those were my likes. That was it. We're on to the dislikes. We're going to move through these at lightning speed. Generally, I thought the acting was actually quite poor in this film. I thought the cast should have been strong, but it was limited by like poor script or poor storytelling. I couldn't quite figure out which one it was. So the lead actress, I think is quite well known and she is and she's definitely a horror last girl. And I just thought she was really underused in the film. And I thought the the kind of the acting, the emotion that was portrayed was really quite shallow, that not much really happened emotionally. It never really got out of second gear. And as a result of that, I ended up finding it quite boring. I think because this film is based on a short film and then the film was padded out around the concept of the short film, it ended up that there were some quite strange additions to the storyline that didn't seem to go anywhere or make sense. Like the parents work for some sort of social media company like Instagram or whatever. That is somehow part of the storyline of them trying to create a social media campaign, but it doesn't really add anything to the story. We learned, for example, that there was quite a bit of bullying going on in the daughter's life who's gone missing. Again, it doesn't really add anything to the story. And another result of the story being padded around this concept was that loads of spooky things happened that didn't seem to link up in a coherent way. Like there was lights flickering, there was counting, there was numerology, there was a gramophone that seemed to summon something, there was skulls painted on the wall, there was Roman numerals everywhere, there was carvings on the wall, there was like a professor who was an expert. And all of those tropes just didn't seem to kind of link together smoothly to create a coherent haunting or a coherent narrative. And basically what it ends up being is a film about this mother trying to research what's haunting her house. So it felt very like Insidious in a way, as in the movie Insidious, not the feeling Insidious. And I did think that the daughter was missing and uh, no one's response is really convincing to it. I know that people respond to things in different ways, but they were all pretty like underwhelmed with their daughter sibling going missing. They were all a bit like, meh, she'll show up. Let's figure out what this demon is that lives in the basement. And then she'll show up at some point. Last thing I'm going to say is that the climax of the film kind of felt a bit GCSE, maybe high school drama. All they were missing was having torches under their chin, to be really honest. Long and short of it, this film had loads of potential, but I actually found it really underwhelming. Didn't hit the mark. Script didn't work. Needed somehow more and less padding at the same time. I'm going to give it a 2.5 out of 5. Which brings us to our story today and the research for today's story comes primarily from a book called The Haunting of Asylum 49 by Richard Estep and let's get into it. Every so often a listener will send in a story about a care home or a hospital facility and every time they make my hair stand on end. Just this week we had a story about a worker in a care home who had experienced numerous inexplicable incidents while working there. Doors opening and closing of their own accord, footsteps, multiple residents complaining about loud children playing all night, and multiple residents seeing the same policeman in the same rooms. There are numerous stories of patients, healthcare workers and family members seeing, hearing 
and even smelling strange and startling things in healthcare facilities all over the world. And is it any wonder? Healthcare facilities are places where the emotional limitations of humanity are really tested. They are places of tragic loss and expected loss and places of the most dizzying joys. Many healthcare facilities are legacy buildings that had various uses spanning over decades and centuries. As we know, healthcare has come a long way and many of the older hospitals were once places of immeasurable sorrow with issues of neglect, overcrowding, underfunding and abuse. It is no wonder, therefore, that we find stories of healthcare facilities and stories from healthcare workers so fascinating. There is an inherent shared experience there. We all will have had some experience at a healthcare facility. We are all at the mercy of our own bodies. And we are all well aware, to some degree, that these facilities can herald new life. But they are also places of death. Tuwila Valley Hospital has a strange history and an even stranger present. It is a place that is quite unlike any hospital I've researched before and the reasons for that will become clear in time. It sits atop a hill, much like you would imagine a horror movie hospital, alone on a desolate ridge with smokestack chimneys and sprawling corridors. One of the many strange things about Tuwila was that when the doors were closed for the last time, there was no big clear-out and no apparent wind-down. One day it was an operational hospital and the next day it wasn't, and that meant that everything was left behind. The last medical staff locked the doors behind them, but everything remained intact. Wards with rows of gurney beds ready to be occupied, machines, medical equipment, offices with notes and medical books. It was as though the staff had just stepped out for a break and would be back again in a matter of moments and normal services would be resumed as before. Tuwila Valley Hospital was not always a hospital. It began its life as the home of Samuel Lee and his family. It was built in 1873 and remained a family residence until it was passed over to the county in 1913. From there, it became a care home for the elderly and those with intellectual disabilities. And while it may have started with good intentions, as many of these establishments do, it became known locally as the County Poorhouse, perhaps seen by some as a dumping ground for the elderly, the infirmed and those with intellectual disabilities. The Tuwila Valley Hospital operated as a medical facility until 2002 and then was reverted back to an old folks home. A part of the building remains a residential care home for the elderly to this day but a part of it had been abandoned. A perfectly preserved medical facility standing idle atop a hill. So what happened to it? In 2006 Kim Anderson toured the medical facility and immediately knew it was perfect for what he needed. It could not be any better. It was exactly what he needed for the perfect haunted house attraction. And that's why Tuwila Valley Hospital is so interesting. One side was a very normal old people's home, 
but attached to the old people's home through a locked door was Asylum 49, a medical facility-based haunted house attraction. The owner of the old people's home had had the brainwave to turn it into a haunted house attraction the year previously. He had created a horror maze in the conference room of the old hospital for Halloween. And for various reasons, it wasn't sustainable for him to do it. But Kim was keen to give it a go and set about building sets in the various rooms and corridors through the abandoned hospital. The rooms were laid out exactly as they had been when the hospital was operational, so it wasn't a creative leap to begin the horrification of the building. The remnants of the maze were still there from the previous year, and for the moment, Kim decided to leave that room as it was. As with many of these stories, it was hindsight and tentative conversations that began to piece together what was happening at Asylum 49. Kim would work on the set building in the evenings and late into the night, and he would see flitting shadows out of the corner of his eye. Doors would slam and open of their own accord, and tools would go missing constantly. He would put something down, and when he would return to grab it again, it would be gone, seemingly transported to another room or another part of the building. When he had decided to turn the hospital into an attraction, he wasn't doing it because he thought it would be actually haunted. Rather, he had worked in haunted attractions since he was a teenager, and he knew a good location when he saw one. But there was something about this building that was making him feel uneasy. It began to be a bit of a chore to go there in the evenings. He would have to force himself into the building and was petrified of the conference room. But he told himself it was simply the surroundings making him feel on edge. The history of the building, the surreal state of preservation that it was left in, and the fact that bits of it were already kitted out to scare people. Of course he was freaked out and his mind was making mountains out of molehills. The time came for him to explore the conference room. It was set up like a makeshift maze with white sheets draped everywhere that guests would have to find their way through. Kim made his way through the maze, beads of sweat beginning to form on his brow and on his upper lip. It wasn't hot. He felt icy cold and very uneasy. He made his way to the centre of the maze his breathing heavier than it should be, and white sheets flanking him either side and obscuring his view. He had the unsettling feeling that someone or something was standing on the other side of the white sheets, just out of his view and just out of his reach. And then he felt it. A small icy cold hand fumbled with the hem of his shirt, and then slipped into his hand. Kim's blood turned cold and without thinking, he sprinted from the conference room, petrified in a way that he had not felt before. What he had experienced in that room defied logic, but seemed to justify the feelings that he had about the building. Maybe it wasn't his imagination. Maybe strange things were happening. Kim continued with his work but stayed out of the conference room. Others were drafted in to help with the work and the set building and slowly but surely, conversations began to emerge 
of people having experiences in the building. Like Kim in those early days when he was working alone, people would hear doors slamming, muffled voices, and items would disappear and reappear. And most disturbingly, people began to hear their own names being called from empty rooms. But still, despite the tentative conversations, Kim still refused to believe that it was anything more than the power of suggestion. Except the incident in the conference room still played on his mind. Eventually, the haunted attraction was taking shape, and Kim organised a walkthrough with the owner of the old people's home, who had organised the small haunted maze in the conference room the year before. As they strolled, they chatted and made their way to the conference room. The owner asked Kim what he thought of the room, and Kim hesitated and wondered if now was the right time to tell someone what had happened. He tentatively told the owner that he had had a strange experience in the room, and the owner's response shook him to his core. Oh, we had lots of strange things that happened during the haunted maze. So many people would come up to me afterwards and tell me that the little girl in the maze was the creepiest bit about it. And I didn't have the heart to tell them that there was no little girl. To be honest, I thought people were joking at first. But then so many different people said the same thing. So strange. I mean, there has to be something to it, right? Over time, Kim began to try and discover ways in which he could prove that the building was haunted, or at least communicate with the spirits that were haunting it, and it resulted in the building becoming a beacon for paranormal investigators. There have been numerous EVPs and photographs taken on site, and people continue to be interested in it to this day. But who or what are the entities that haunt Asylum 49? Asylum 49 appears to be teeming with ghosts and some are not in the least bit shy about making themselves known both to the staff and to the unsuspecting public. It began with some shadowy figures as these stories often do. A hulking shadow that could be seen lurking around, moving through the building, stepping across door frames, barely concealing itself. It seemed somehow cognizant and aware of the people that saw it. This had become commonplace for the staff to spot various shadows moving through the buildings. But when they saw the photograph, things became frighteningly more real. The photograph seemed innocuous at first, a snapshot of the long main corridor of the building, ending with some heavy wooden doors. But as a member of staff looked at the photo, They looked at Kim and said, I didn't realise we had a new actor in. That costume is good. They didn't have a new actor in. Kim knew that off the top of his head and took the photo to examine it. At the end of the hallway, standing in front of the wooden doors was a figure, shrouded in darkness except for its face. And its face sent shivers down Kim's spine. He thought it was a mask at first, but the more he looked, the more he realised that it wasn't a mask. Whatever this thing was, its features seemed to have been stretched and warped to make them wildly exaggerated. It was almost like a clown mask. It was standing in front of the doors, its face smiling at the camera, 
it was disturbing to say the least. In order to dispel the tension and alleviate some of his own fears, Kim laughed and cracked some jokes about the entity, saying it looked like a clown. Jeremy, they called it. Sometimes naming something that frightens you can take some of the feelings of fear away and Jeremy became a regular feature in the paranormal experiences. The more Jeremy appeared, the more they were able to piece together what might have happened to him. Whenever he appeared, the acrid smell of smoke would fill the air, like a fire was smouldering away in the building. The team began to wonder if Jeremy's face was the result of burn injuries and they immediately stopped referring to him as a clown in fear that he would perceive their comments as insulting. They got their answer. In a building like Asylum 49, there is a constant maintenance and upkeep, especially with the CCTV. The maintenance team were busy doing rewiring. One member of the team was up a ladder, while the other team members were still on the ground. From up the ladder, he heard the sound of the double door at the end of the corridor swing open and shut, but was deep in concentration so didn't look up. But then he smelled it. The distinct smell of burning, which is never a good sign when you're working with wires. He looked up just in time to see a man turn away from him and walk through the doors at the end of the corridor. He blinked. The man walked through the doors. The doors did not open. The man passed straight through them. And the man's face. His face was heavily bandaged, leaving only his eyes and mouth exposed, both of which were raw and painful looking. He quickly descended the ladder, saying nothing to his colleagues, and they checked for the source of the burning smell which had now disappeared. They had all smelled it, and the youngest of the three eventually turned to his colleagues and said, Did you see that man? With the burnt face? He just walked right through that door. Having CCTV in every room is key in a building like Asylum 49. It helps protect the actors and the public, and it also comes in handy for spotting ghosts too. Quite regularly, the ghost of a little girl has been caught on CCTV, running out of a room, but not appearing in the next room where she logically would show up on camera. This same little girl, likely to have been the entity who held Kim's hand when he began renovations, has been seen numerous times by the public, but also her voice has been caught on EVPs looking for her mother. One woman, who was part of a ghost tour, was taken by the hand by a little girl in a white dress looking for her mother. The woman thought nothing of it when she turned around and the little girl was gone, thinking she had seen her mother and ran off, but was shocked to discover that the little girl she interacted with matched the description of the little girl ghost that haunted the attraction. The staff named her Sarah, and she is believed to be the cause of numerous paranormal encounters. She can be heard crying and calling for her mommy. She can be heard giggling and laughing. And there have been reports of people being grabbed by the ankles by small icy cold hands from under the gurney beds. No actors have ever been positioned under the beds to grab participants. Sarah becomes more active and livelier when the attraction is busy. 
almost as though she feeds off the energy of the excited punters. And she is not the only entity to have been spotted on CCTV. The ghost of a doctor is said to haunt the site of the old neonatal intensive care unit. Staff would see flashes of him and he seemed to be working just doing what you would imagine a doctor would do in his rounds. But it was CCTV that confirmed his existence. During one of the scare events, a fake surgeon was performing ghastly butchery on an innocent victim. A member of staff was monitoring the CCTV in their control room when something caught their eye. The fake surgeon was performing his surgery to the delight of the grossed out crowds. But in the room there was another figure, the unmistakable figure of a doctor in a white coat watching the surgeon perform his operation. As time went on, more and more entities began to assert themselves as individuals to the staff and to the public. They realised that not every event could be attributed to Jeremy and Sarah, and actually there were a whole host of entities that were contributing to the haunting of Asylum 49. When the spooky season was over, the year's sets would be taken down and the hospital would be restored to its original state. And at these times, the different entities became much clearer. There was the shadow man, Robert, who could clearly be seen moving around with what seemed to be a cane or a walking stick. He would stand at door frames, peering out at staff members, or he would be seen commando crawling from one room to another. There was Thomas, the ghost of a small boy who would insist on messing up the bedsheets on the hospital gurneys. There was the ghost of Eva, an older woman who died in room two. Her presence had been felt by the resident Asylum 49 psychic, and interestingly, her existence in life was later confirmed. Her granddaughter came to tour the hospital and stated that her grandmother Eva had stayed in room two before she died. She had no prior knowledge of the hauntings and the staff had no knowledge that she was the granddaughter of an ex-patient. She later sent a picture of her grandmother to the staff and when it was shown to the psychic without context, she exclaimed, Oh my God, where did you find a picture of the woman in room two? With some of the entities in the building, there came unpredictability. Like the ghost of old Wes, whose spirit seems to aggressively protect his room, violently attacking people who had the gall to try and antagonise him. He has been captured on EVP recordings, violently swearing at investigators, and in one incident, his shadow was seen pacing the hallway outside of his room, round and around in circles, just pacing in a frenetic loop, as though he was stuck in the action, unable to stop. There were reports of the shadow of a small boy who lurked in the kitchen area and would be seen peeping around door frames before ducking back out of sight when he was spotted. There was a report of a seven-foot-tall entity in the church, an entity that had elongated limbs and no facial features glimpsed fleetingly. But there is one entity that resides in the deep recesses of the building that even the staff are afraid of. The Guardian. In life, the Guardian collected secrets. 
it is believed that he worked in an administrative role in the hospital when he was living. But in that time, his goals and intentions were not those of a good man. He wanted to know everything and anything he could to leverage against patients and staff in order to uphold his power over those around him. He especially wanted power over women. And in death, his need to be the dominant player was ever-present. One of the staff, however, just didn't really get it. Was it really possible that this entity, this mist, this ghost, whatever it was, was pushing people around and scratching them? It just didn't seem like it was possible. Despite all of the goings-on in Asylum 49, he felt as though this particular story might be a bit exaggerated. Maybe people's fear was getting the better of them. They had turned the Guardian's room into a maze, after all. So maybe the confusion that was induced by the maze, combined with the fear and disorientation, was making people feel as though there was something more to be feared. He discussed it loudly and at length one night with a colleague. I just don't think it's as bad as people say, he exclaimed. I mean, I get it. There's something in there. But I've never seen him do anything. Hey, maybe the Guardian is just misunderstood, he laughed. His colleague was outraged and warned him of the dangers of tempting fate. The walls in Asylum 49 had ears and bold claims like that could evoke a bold response. Later in the evening, the member of staff was doing his rounds, checking from room to room to ensure that there were no stragglers left behind and that it was safe to begin shutting the building down. He made his way towards the Guardian's room and into the maze and was overcome by a feeling of dread. A sickness formed in the pit of his stomach, a gnawing anticipation, and he began to sweat. He shook himself, willing himself to snap out of it. This was only because of the conversation from earlier. It was just his mind playing tricks on him and his body responding to it, that was all. He forced himself to move around the room, doing all the necessary checks and ensuring that there was no one there, and felt the relief begin to trickle through his veins as he made his way back towards the door. Suddenly he was on the floor, winded and dazed. He knew what had just happened. He felt it, and still felt the pain in his side as he struggled to catch his breath. As he was just about to leave the room, He felt a violent shove. He physically felt the force shove him and he smacked hard into the doorframe, hard enough to leave him sprawling on the ground. As he scrambled to get to his feet, a soft, hoarse, throaty laugh emerged from somewhere within the maze echoing around him. There had been no one in the room. He was 100% sure of that. But something had pushed him hard and something had wanted to hurt him. And that wouldn't be his last experience of the Guardian. Months later, after the memory had faded and he'd convinced himself that it wasn't that bad, he was working on a tour and was following behind a group that were exiting the Guardian's room. As he strolled forward, he bumped into someone hard. Instinctively, he apologised, saying he hadn't seen them and he should be more careful. Except there was no one there. He had bumped right into someone, some solid mass. He knew it and he felt it. But there was no one there. The stories from the old Tuwila Valley Hospital 
are multitudinous and were never confined to just the haunted attraction. Staff at the adjacent care home talked about black cloaked figures being seen on the nights that residents passed away and the sounds of children playing during the night shifts. In 2017, the care home was transferred elsewhere, leaving the building fully in the care of the Asylum 49 team. There are, of course, those who claim that a portal exists on the site of the old Tuwila Valley Hospital, and therefore spirits are attracted to the location. There are also claims that the original owner of the building, Samuel Lee, still roams the building, and that the ghost of Thomas is actually his son. It is also possible that there is no portal, but that the building itself has seen such a rich history and has experienced the full spectrum of human emotion that some of the main characters have remained. I have so many thoughts about this story and about this location, but first, before we go any further, you might be thinking, that story is really familiar. That location is really familiar. That's because it was on a Ghost Adventures episode, and it was an episode where they used that Jacob's Ladder thing in order to try and encourage some activity, which is like some sort of weird like arch of energy that's like something from a superhero movie it's like something a villain would use anyway they'd use that to try and encourage some activity there was a bit in it where zach was really confrontational and aggressive and then he was shoved into a wall i think it was in the room of old wes he went in all guns blazing and then apparently got shoved so lesson to be learned there don't be going in all guns blazing and don't be aggressive towards spirits If they are real, if they are there, they were also once people too and they don't deserve it. Except if they were a dick in life, then they probably do deserve it. So my big question about all of this, about this whole story is, is it just good marketing? And I don't think you can escape that question when you're talking about a building that does operate pretty much full time doing ghost tours and doing haunted house attractions so did did kim anderson see this building as the perfect fright night house and then decide it needs a bit of extra flair to keep people interested and drum up the numbers i don't know i do know that that scare houses like haunted house attractions are way more popular in the u.s than they are here in the uk like i don't think i could name one in the uk that is there to be visited at Halloween. I know they did like scare mazes a couple of years ago at Dreamland, which is an amusement park close to us. So it seems to be quite popular in the US to have those scare Fright Night houses. So it makes me wonder, did Kim Anderson see this house or see this facility rather and think, yes, it's perfect, but I do need to get a one up on my competitors. Wouldn't it be better if it was actually haunted and am I against it no I'm actually not against it in this instance because what he's done is taken an old building and during off-season times people get tours of it he gets to kind of keep the integrity of the building and turns it into a Halloween fright night haunted scare place at Halloween and I think if it's a case of good marketing then it's very good marketing because they got ghost adventures involved. People have written about this place kind of ad nauseum. I mean, this entire book was written about this place. So, of course, if people are paranormal enthusiasts, they're going to want to go and do a Fright Night. 
but with the extra possibility of actually seeing a ghost. So if it's good marketing, fair play to them. And I'm not actually against it. And there were interesting stories in this book about people finding real closure when they went to this building because it operated as a hospital up until relatively recently. So relatives of people who had been born there, died there, you know, had had been sick there, had recovered there, whatever it was, those people are still very much alive. And there was one story in particular about a family whose uh, nephew, a woman whose nephew had died there. And during the ghost tour, they mentioned a lot of details about her nephew's death that kind of weren't really public knowledge that seemed to have been collected by the staff through a variety of mediums and visitors who claimed to have medium abilities, etc., etc. And it seemed that through that story, which initially started out as quite upsetting for the family involved, that they did end up getting some closure with the whole story, with the situation. There was also the story of Eva, which I briefly mentioned in the in the episode where her granddaughter came to visit and she got this she got to sit in the room and tell her grandmother all about her life now and and what would be her grandmother's great-grandchildren and and I kind of thought oh that's quite nice for people to get that bit of closure people from the local area or people who have ties from the local area and in saying all that skeptical stuff I also don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility that buildings like this would be haunted and I think I say this every time we cover like a haunted hospital or an old lunatic asylum or whatever type of hospital it is that of all places that would be haunted I do think they're the most likely places there is so much loss and trauma and emotion and so much sudden death and tragic loss and then healthcare workers that pretty much dedicate their whole lives to their jobs like it's a lot going on in one building and I and I do think like if you prescribe to the stone tape theory, which I can't give you a full kind of explanation of now, but it is the theory that buildings retain memories of things that happen, then it would make sense that you'd have these memories, these shadows, these echoes of doctors continuing their rounds or patients who were there for long term doing the same things in death as they did in life. So in that regard, I do think that lots of the stories are believable. However, what I will say, which has sort of come up in the last couple of weeks, because it came up last week in the Hawaii stories and then in this one as well. Why do we keep seeing this influx of a slender man entity? Has this only happened since slender man became like popular culture? Like, do we imagine that as being kind of one of the scariest things that you can see? So therefore it's cropped up in all these haunted locations. Or is it something that is actually there and we just didn't have a name for it beforehand? So now we have a point of reference. We can say, oh, it looked like Slenderman. Like surely previously an entity like that, that was long limbed, grey, whatever, would have been considered alien like. But it definitely doesn't seem to be considered alien-like. I just think it's bizarre how it seems to crop up. This specific entity of like long-limbed, looks like Slenderman, seems to crop up in so many stories of haunted places nowadays. And I just wonder if it's it's kind of a a convenient add-on that feeds into popular culture rather than it being an actual entity. I'm being very cynical in today's episode. So I apologise. 
I'm just being super cynical. I don't know what's wrong with me. Oh, and before I forget, cynicism aside, in the description of this episode, there is a link where you can go and look at photographs, listen to EVPs, look at videos that have all been captured in Asylum 49. And if you can't access the link, if you just go onto their website, they have tabs that bring you to all of their EVPs and stuff that have been captured. And you know what? Some of them are pretty good. You know, some of them, some of them are particularly the ones I think of the kids like shouting for their mom and stuff like those ones are pretty interesting. So to conclude, I feel like I'm kind of in two minds about this one. Like I, on the one hand, can understand how a building like a care home, an old hospital could be haunted of all places that could be haunted. I really feel like places like that could be. But then on the other hand, I think it's difficult when something is making money. I wonder if it is a really clever marketing ploy and no tea, no shade. If that's, it's good marketing. It's good marketing because here I am doing an episode about it, you know. So if, if that is what it is, then they've done it very successfully. But do let me know your thoughts on this one. Like, do you think it's clever marketing or do you think it is actually genuinely haunted or do you think it's a bit of both? That it's genuinely haunted and the stories maybe have been magnified to try and reel people in. If you have visited Asylum 49, let me know. Did you enjoy it? Was it scary? Do you believe it? Did you have any experiences? Did you get have any feelings? Did you feel like, hey, there could be some actual legitimacy behind these stories? If you did, please let me know. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Just a reminder that the information in this episode came from the book, The Haunting of Asylum 49 by Richard Eastep. And all of there's there's various other places as well, websites, links, etc. where I got information from that will be linked in the description of this episode. Thank you for listening. If you would like to know more information about Real Life Ghost Stories, you can do so by checking out reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. If you are desperate for some extra content, you can get some extra content at patreon.com forward slash real life ghost stories where for five dollars a month you get access to an extra weekly mini episode and for two dollars a month you get a back catalogue of movie review episodes thank you so much for listening and i shall see you next time